Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The Andes Mountains are one of the great wonders of the natural world. It's the longest continental mountain range on Earth. The mountains divide South America roughly in two. They were formed over 50 million years ago when the South American and Pacific tectonic plates collided. Geologically speaking, it's actually several mountain ranges with long chains of gigantic peaks, valleys, and plateaus all joined together in what are referred to as orographic knots. The great majority of these mountains are volcanic. In fact, the tallest active volcano in the world is part of the Andes. The Ojos del Salado stands at over 6,900 meters in a remote location along the Chilean and Argentinian borders. That's just a few meters shy of the tallest overall peak, Mount Aconcagua, which tops out at 6,962 meters. The Andes are actually full of a number of the biggest geographical features in the world. For example, Bolivia is home to both Lake Titicaca, the highest navigable lake on the planet, as well as Salar Uyuni, the largest salt flat. In addition, the largest gold mine in the world is part of the Andes. It can even be argued that the true highest point on Earth can be found here. One that's taller than Mount Everest. Due to the equatorial bulge of planet Earth, Mount Chimborazo is actually the furthest point from the Earth's surface to its core. Standing at 6,263 meters, this is Ecuador's tallest peak. As you can probably imagine, many of the highest peaks are inhospitable to most forms of life. The temperatures there are frigid. Snowpacks can be as thick as 100 feet deep and no plant life grows in the high elevations. That isn't to say there isn't life to be found anywhere throughout the Andes, though. It's actually an incredibly biodiverse range. The Amazon River originates in the Andes. And all throughout, you can find practically every variety of climate from the arid Atacama deserts to the snow-covered peaks and valleys to the desert rainforests and tropical dry forests that encircle the low-lying regions. Of course, the most well-known civilization to ever rise up in the Andes is the Incan Empire. The Incas got their start in the central Andes during the 15th century. Over the generations they remained in power, the Incas constructed a massive civilization known both for its imperialistic militarism as well as its meticulous city planning, which included an advanced system of aqueducts and roads, many of which still exist today. In addition, the Incas practiced advanced irrigation techniques more than 6,000 years ago, some of which are still in practice to this day. Both the tomato and the potato were products of these ancient farming practices, both of which were introduced to the Western world after the Spanish conquistadors brought them back to the West with them. Even today, a great many crops are grown across the mountainous slopes. Everything from wheat and barley to corn, onions, carrots, 
and less savory crops such as the coca plant. There is also a large amount of grazing pastures, especially in areas surrounding the many rivers and tributaries that crisscross the low-lying areas. One long-standing tradition that carries on even today throughout the Andes are that of the muleteers, or arrieros, as they're known in Spanish. Although many of the remaining muleteers operate as transport for goods, they also sometimes serve as cattle herders, which is what a particular trio of muleteers were doing in December 1972 near Chile's Rio San Jose when they encountered something extraordinary. The three men were out riding in the early evening near a river when across the other side they noticed two strangers standing there. They were ragged looking, dressed in what appeared to be a patchwork of multiple layers of mismatched clothing. They were dirty with long beards and straggly hair. And the one thing the three cattle herders could agree on is that this pair didn't belong there. None of them knew where the strangers came from. They were just suddenly there, standing on the opposite shore, waving their arms frantically and shouting at them. But none of the trio of cattlemen could make out what they were saying over the roar of the river. It was clear they wanted something, but it was getting late and the three muleteers knew they needed to be getting back home. So one of the trio shouted, Manana, as loud as he could in the hope that the strangers would hear it over the thunderous noise. Tomorrow. The following morning, the three men returned to where they encountered the strangers. And sure enough, they were still there. Only this time, they appeared even more anxious to get their attention than before. The muleteers had spoken amongst themselves about who these two strangers were and what they could want. They were all in agreement that the two men appeared to be in some sort of distress. But the muleteers knew they needed to be cautious because the men could turn out to be robbers or even terrorists. Fortunately or unfortunately, they still had a raging river to keep them apart until they could be certain it was safe. One of the muleteers scribbled a note on a piece of paper asking the strangers what they wanted. He wrapped the note around a rock and tied it with a piece of string. Then he chucked the rock across the river to the other side. One of the strangers picked it up and read it. The stranger then signaled with his hands that he had nothing to write with. So once again, the cattleman tied a pencil to a rock and tossed that to them as well. The stranger wrote furiously. His brow furrowed intently as he wrote back. Then he tied up the note and threw it back across the river toward them. What that note said shocked them all. It began, I come from a plane that fell in the mountains. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from my secret recording studio in the hollow earth, and this is The Conspirators. Uruguay is one of the smallest countries in South America. It has an enormous Catholic population, a holdover from the Spanish missionaries and conquistadors who came to South America during the 15th and 16th centuries. In the early 1950s, a group of Catholic parents became increasingly dissatisfied by what they saw as the atheistic teachings of the state-run school. 
So to combat this problem, they looked outside their own borders and asked the Irish province of the Christian Brothers to start a school in Montevideo. The brothers agreed, and soon five Irish brothers traveled to Buenos Aires to start the Stella Maris School, a school for boys between the ages of 9 and 16. One of the many new teachings the brothers brought to Uruguay was the sport of rugby football. Like much of South America, soccer was the most popular sport everywhere you went. But the brothers managed to convince enough parents to go along with their desire to form an amateur rugby league by marketing it as more of a sport of the common people, unlike soccer, which they said was the sport of the wealthy elites. Rugby caught on so well that some of the alumni from the Stella Maris College decided they wanted to keep playing even after graduating. So in 1965, an alumni rugby league known as the Old Christians Club was formed. Over the next few years, the Old Christians became one of the best rugby teams in the country. In 1968, they won the Uruguayan National Championship, and they did so again two years later in 1970. Occasionally, the team would play against teams in neighboring countries. So it came to be that in 1971, a decision was made to play a match against the Old Boys Club, an English rugby team in Santiago, Chile. The match was scheduled for October 1972. Although the team was serious about the game, this really was as much of a holiday weekend for them as it was a chance to play. They were set to leave on a Thursday and be back Monday. Back then, the cheapest way to travel was for commuters to charter flights from the Uruguayan National Air Force. The old Christians Club president, Daniel Juan, chartered a flight on an Air Force twin turboprop, Fairchild FH-227D, that would take them over the Andes to Santiago. The aircraft could carry 40 passengers and 5 crew members. Word got around early on that there were 10 empty seats, so members of the team put out the word among friends and family that they could tag along. This included Graciela Mariani, who bought the seat at the last minute when someone canceled, allowing her to attend her oldest daughter's wedding. She never made it. The Fairchild departed Carrasco International Airport on October 12, 1972. But a storm front over the Andes forced them to stop that first night in Mendoza, Argentina. There's actually a more direct route that could have taken them straight across the Andes to the west, to Santiago, that was only 200 kilometers long. But doing so would require the plane to maintain an altitude of 25,000 to 26,000 feet. This was just under the Fairchild's maximum operational ceiling of 28,000 feet. Because of the weight of the plane from all the people on board, it was decided they would take a longer route where they would fly 600 kilometers south, before veering west across the lower mountains of the Andes, then turning back north towards Santiago. What the team didn't know, and the Uruguayan Air Force didn't widely advertise, was that the Fairchild FH-227 was notoriously underpowered, and had actually been given the nickname the Lead Sled. The Fairchild also had a lengthy track record of crashing. Of the 78 Fairchilds that were built, 23 of them crashed, with over 393 fatalities as a result. It was a combination of factors that contributed to the crash that was still to come. Not only was the plane not mechanically up to the task of crossing the Andes, but the crew wasn't either. 
The pilot was Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas, a pilot with a total of 5,117 flying hours. But in terms of total flying time, that's not considered a lot either. To his credit, he had flown over the Andes 29 times. At the same time, he was also in the process of training his co-pilot, an even less experienced officer named Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Laguerra. For much of the flight, the passengers remained in good spirits. The rugby team members were drinking and singing songs and tossing a ball across the rows to each other. But while they were having a party in the back of the plane, the pilots were struggling to remain on course. It was well known that the optimal time to cross the Andes was in the morning because of the weather. But the flight got a late start and the pilots made the ill-fated decision to cross in the afternoon. There was heavy cloud cover below the plane, which made it impossible to see the terrain below. The pilot was relying on radio navigation to determine their position. By the time the plane reached Planchon Pass, they still had to travel another 60 to 70 kilometers to Curaco. But despite this, at 3.21 p.m., co-pilot Laguerra contacted Santiago and informed them he expected them to reach Curaco only a few minutes later. The flight time from the pass to Curaco is typically 11 minutes. But after only three minutes, La Guerrera informed the tower they were passing Curaco and turning north. He requested permission for air traffic controllers to descend. They authorized him to bring the plane down to 11,500 feet. But the pilots had badly miscalculated and instead of turning north on the opposite side of the Andes Mountains, they were turning directly into them. Only they couldn't see it because of the thick layer of clouds beneath the plane. At this point, the party in the back of the plane abruptly died down as the flight began to hit heavy turbulence. One of the flight attendants told the passengers to fasten their seatbelts because, as she put it, the plane was beginning to dance. One of the team members, Nando Parado, would later recall a moment where the plane hit a downdraft, causing it to quickly drop several hundred feet out of the clouds. It was at that point that everyone, including the pilots, finally realized that they were flying directly into the mountains. Another team member, Robert Canessa, recalled how the pilot immediately yanked back at the controls and tried to pull them into a climb. The plane became nearly vertical. The engine groaned and began to sputter and stall. The aircraft ground collision alarm began to blare loudly inside the cabin. The pilot cranked up the engines to maximum power in an attempt to gain altitude, but it was too little, too late. It's believed the plane struck one of the tall mountains either two or three times. The first collision ripped into the lower tail cone at around 13,800 feet. The plane narrowly missed going straight into a mountain peak and instead came right through the saddle between two peaks. People were screaming as the next collision sheared the right wing off. The wing swung free and smashed into the vertical stabilizer and rear tail cone. When the rear tail cone detached, it took with it the rear portion of the fuselage, including the two rows of seats and the rear section of the passenger cabin. Three passengers, along with the plane's steward, disappeared out the hole in the fuselage as the tail broke away and went hurtling down the mountain. For a few more seconds, the plane continued on its upward trajectory. When the left wing clipped the rocky mountainside and tore loose, 
One of the propellers broke off and sliced through the fuselage as the wing it was attached to was severed. Two more passengers fell out of the huge gash in the side of the plane. Then the front portion of the fuselage hurtled upward before bellying out in the snow-covered peak. Then it began to hurtle down the steep slope like a toboggan at around 220 miles per hour. The plane's fuselage skidded down the mountain for another 2,000 feet before it finally crashed into a snowbank and came to a stop. The final impact crushed the cockpit, killing Ferratus and seriously injuring the co-pilot. He was left in such extreme pain he would soon begin begging for someone to hand him his pistol so he could take his own life. Twelve people died in total during the initial crash, leaving 33 survivors at that point. Many of them had major injuries, including a lot of broken legs that resulted as the aircraft seats collapsed forward against the luggage partition and pilot's cabin. Two of the team members, Roberto Canessa and Gustavo Zerbino, were both first-year medical students. They jumped into action as quickly as they could to begin assessing everyone's condition. Nando Parado had a skull fracture and would remain in a coma for three days. According to doctors who have studied the case, the extreme cold actually worked in Nando's favor by slowing his system and helping his body recuperate. Enrique Platero staggered forward out of the fuselage only to reveal he had a long shaft of metal sticking out of his abdomen. When the medical students decided to remove the metal shaft, it actually brought with it several inches of the man's intestines. But Platero worked through the pain and began helping others. It took several hours for the co-pilot Laguerra to die. The cabin was so mangled that there was nothing anyone could do to get him out. In between begging for someone to put him out of his misery, he could be heard repeatedly babbling how he was certain they had passed Curico. The plane's wreckage lay at the bottom of a steep valley. They were surrounded on all sides by mountains that rose as high as 16,000 feet. On that first day, the sun set at 4 p.m., which meant soon they were all in darkness. The nighttime temperatures dropped to 30 below zero. Everyone struggled to remain warm. Most of them were dressed for warm weather. No one had thought to bring any winter gear. Five more people died that night. The following morning, the survivors heard a plane passing by overhead. But the white fuselage of the plane was practically invisible against the white snow. After this became evident, the survivors tried to write an SOS on the roof of the plane using lipstick. But they realized they didn't have enough lipstick to make the letters visible from the air. The Chilean Air Search and Rescue Service was notified of the crash immediately, but their ability to search for the plane was hampered by more bad weather as well as the realization that the plane had likely gone down in one of the most inaccessible regions of the Andes. Search teams from Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay all worked together looking for the lost plane. Initially, the survivors of the crash thought they would be rescued early on, but as they continued to occasionally hear planes overhead, they soon came to realize no one could see where they were. On October 21st, after searching for a total of 142 hours, the searchers concluded there was no hope of finding the crashed plane and ended the search. In the meantime, the passengers turned the shattered fuselage into a crude shelter. They scouted the immediate area around them and they realized there was nothing but heavy snow and mountains. The snowpack throughout the area could reach as deep as 100 feet in some places. Inside the fuselage, the survivors removed the broken seats and other debris. 
They used the luggage, seats, and whatever else they could find to close off the open end of the plane. They had no medical supplies and very little food. Thirst became an issue early on. So Fido Strouch devised a way to obtain water by using sheet metal from beneath the seats and placing snow on it. The sun melted the snow, which they then captured into empty wine bottles. Strouch would become instrumental in helping them devise other methods to survive. To prevent snow blindness, he improvised sunglasses using the sun visors in the pilot's cabin. Later, he would figure out a way to pull apart the seat cushions and use them as snowshoes. Three days after the crash, Nando Parado woke to a living nightmare. He had almost no memory of the crash, but when he regained consciousness, he learned that his mother had died and his 19-year-old sister Susie was severely injured. He tried keeping her alive as best he could, but on the eighth day, she died in Nando's arms. The survivors found a small transistor radio jammed between the seats. One of the survivors named Roy Harley who had some experience with radios and stereo equipment, improvised a long antenna by using a length of electrical cable he was able to salvage. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. On the 11th day, the news came over the radio that the search had been called off. Many of the survivors immediately began to sob and pray. Then one of the young men, Gustavo Nikolic, poked his head into the makeshift shelter inside the fuselage and grinned at them. He told them, Hey boys, there's some good news. We just heard on the radio they've called off the search. One of the others snapped at him, Why the hell is that good news? Nikolic replied, Because it means that we're going to get out of here on our own. The survivors had almost no food on board. One of the first things they did was to assess whatever meager supplies they had, and it wasn't anywhere near enough to sustain them. At best, they had enough food to sustain about nine or ten of them for a single day. They had eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, a little candy, some dried plums, and a few bottles of wine. They divided the rations as best they could, but it wasn't anywhere near enough calories to feed them all, especially in the higher altitudes where the body burns calories at an alarming rate. Starvation set in quickly. When the human body is starved for nourishment, it will begin using up all its fat cells first, and when those are used up, it will begin feeding on its own internal organs. There was no natural vegetation anywhere around, and no wildlife to be hunted. The survivors even tried looking to see if they could eat parts of the plane, such as the cotton from the seats or the leather suitcases. But these were all chemically treated and completely inedible. The food ran out within a week. It's hard to say who was the first to broach the idea that they might try eating their dead friends and family. The survivors were all Roman Catholic, and many began to pray as they asked God if they could commit this one mortal sin in order to survive. The survivors resisted as long as they could. But the hunger pangs were too great, and soon a handful of survivors began to talk openly about the possibility of consuming the dead. 
The number of people considering this grisly possibility grew quickly. And soon, the group collectively agreed they needed to eat to survive. Roberta Canessa made a knife out of a piece of broken glass from the aircraft windshield, sharpening it with a broken axe. The bodies of the dead were all well-preserved in the frigid temperatures. Canessa set the example for the rest of them by cutting the first matchstick strip of frozen flesh from one of the bodies. One by one, several of his comrades did the same. Initially, some of the survivors flat refused to eat, while others couldn't stomach the frozen flesh. The survivors soon became more adept at stripping the meat from the dead. Making fire was difficult so that they were forced to consume the flesh raw. They dried the flesh out in the sun which helped make it more palatable. They were initially so revolted by what they were doing they could only eat the skin and muscles. Although over time they were forced to consume the heart, lungs, and brains of the dead as well. Javier Methal and his wife Liliana, the only remaining female survivor, were the last holdouts. They both had strong religious convictions and refused to partake of the flesh. The others were only able to convince Liliana to eat by telling her it was no different than taking the Holy Communion. And for about two weeks, this is how life was like for the survivors of the crash. They would wake, tend to their wounded, eat, sleep, and wait for rescue to come, even though none ever did. The one thing they had to constantly battle other than the elements was the thought of losing hope. They were lost and alone in one of the harshest climates on the planet, with no food and barely any shelter. Things couldn't possibly get any worse. That is, until they did. By the 17th day, the group had settled into their harsh routine. They had delegated different teams for different jobs, some of the survivors took care of cutting and cooking. Others handled melting snow and collecting water. Still others handled cleaning or taking care of the most severely wounded. They would eat at midday. Then by four o'clock the sun would dip below the mountains to the west. Almost immediately the temperature would drop dramatically, forcing them all to huddle together inside their makeshift shelter inside the fuselage. They put their wet shoes into the hat rack on the right-hand side in order to keep the cabin dry. Even though it was still early in the day, some of them tried to close their eyes and sleep. There was nothing else to do other than talk quietly amongst themselves. A strong wind howled like a banshee and it crept in through every crevice in the plain. On that day, Carlita Paez said the rosary out loud. Gustavo Nikolic asked Roy Harley if he died before they were rescued. Would he please see that a letter he had written to his novia would make it back to her? He was silent for a moment before he confided in him that he had many regrets and many things that had gone unsaid to his beloved mother. As the dim light inside the fuselage faded, a somber silence filled the chamber. That was when they suddenly heard what sounded like a loud boom in the distance. Then came a terrible rumble that grew to an ear-shattering roar. That was when the avalanche came and buried the plane and all of the survivors beneath the snow. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. 
Thanks so much for listening. This is part one of a two-part episode. Next time, I'll bring the conclusion to this tragic story. In the meantime, I want to take a moment to thank my latest Patreon supporters. Thank you to Matt, Brad, and Sarah. You're all incredible. And thank you to each and every one of my other supporters for helping me keep the lights on. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. Yet another great way you can help us out that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can also find our show in most of the places you get your podcast, including Spotify and Stitcher. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can list our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even write us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for the conclusion of our story about the Andes plane crash.